Waters from Lake Mansarova connect the South Asian subcontinent through numerous river systems creating a geographical entity that has molded a unique regional identity. Today the South Asian region is facing numerous non-traditional security challenges that require regional solutions. The Mansarovar podcast co-produced by the Council for Strategic and Defence Research and Friedrich Ebert Stiftung India brings to you conversations with experts from the region. These conversations discuss critical issues and explore ways of addressing them better together. In this episode, Mr. Kanakmani Dikshit, senior journalist, writer and founding editor of Himal South Asian, a well-read regional review magazine, hosts a conversation with Professor Sanjay Chaturvedi, Professor and Dean, Faculty of Social Sciences, Department of International Relations, South Asian University. They are joined by Dr. Pallavi Raghavan, Assistant Professor and Head of the Department of International Relations at Ashoka University. Dr. Raghavan is also author of the book, Animosity at Bay, An Alternative History of the India-Pakistan Relationship, 1947-1952. to They discuss the region's history of knowledge contribution, pathways to develop networks of knowledge across South Asia, and how these may facilitate narratives of regional commonality and collaboration in the region. Welcome to both of you. Dr. Raghavan and Professor Chaturvedi. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I will now get right into the subject by addressing my first question to Professor Chaturvedi. The subject for us is very important, knowledge generation. And uh, one, we have a situation today where we may not be in South Asia as a whole, the fount of knowledge for so many aspects of the social sciences and even the hard sciences. But historically, we are told by our own history that we generated knowledge. Could you, as an opening question and a point of discussion, delve into South Asia's role and what we might call ancient India's role? Because ancient India after 1947 became South Asia. Because India, the name, got taken over by India, the nation state, which in a way goes to the heart of the issue. So, what has been the generation of knowledge historically in our region, sir? The question of knowledge uh, intrigues me. Intrigues me in the sense that how do we define knowledge? Because the term knowledge needs to be contextualized. It is both about the texts and it is also about the context in which these texts are embedded. And I think uh, once we adopt a geo-historical perspective, which Dr. Palvi brings to the conversation in a very natural way. We have to really take the very concept, not on its face value, but I think very critically. I am reminded of the seminal scholarship of uh, a German sociologist and philosopher, Nico Stair, who has devoted all his life in studying the concept of knowledge. And he was, I think, at the forefront of talking about knowledge societies. In one of my conversations with him, when I asked him the question, what is knowledge? He gave a very interesting answer. And he said, capacity to act, that it is not just the production of some information and, you know, the pedagogy and the curricula, and, but it is about the capacity. And I think it is about the capacity to imagine, capacity also not only to learn, but more difficult capacity to unlearn, capacity to be aware of how history offers certain lessons 
to the major big questions of today and also prepares us for the kind of future that we do not consider as inevitable, you know, that this is the kind of future that we are doomed to live with or live against, but the kind of futures that we would like. To so I think that's my first observation. Yeah. I will turn to Professor Raghavan. When we talk about knowledge generation, firstly, we're not talking here in this program, I would hope, on a, just a general discussion of knowledge generation, but knowledge generation of a kind that benefits the world and benefits the people of South Asia, because the people of South Asia, very much in distress, make up by now a fourth of the world's population. So talk about knowledge generation for the sake of South Asia is enough. So we do need to go back to academia, I believe, in trying to generate a concept of South Asia that will work for all of us. And there I come now to Ashoka University where you are located and your own work of being proactive on this by reaching out to Lums University across the border, which itself must have been quite a challenge given the mood in each of our countries. So my question to you is specifically, what is the role of academia in generating knowledge, not just generically, but for the sake of a South Asian future? So I and Professor Ali Usman Kasmi, both of us are historians of modern South Asia, and both of us work on uh, similar themes around the partition of India and the 20th century history of South Asia. When I taught this course, I was actually at another private university in India, uh, Jindal University. This had happened a couple of years ago. And uh, Professor Kasmi had uh, approached me and, you know, we had been in discussions for some time about how we could go about kind of if we were to teach a history course to both our sets of students, one in Haryana, as Mr. Dikshit was pointing out, and one in Lahore, what would that kind of history look like? And would that kind of history look different from the kinds of history that we would have taught had these classrooms not been connected? In other words, like the kind of history that we were teaching, was it a way of kind of questioning the nation state centric narratives that we're used Ruins. to kind of producing in our classrooms? And when this course was being developed, like we both sort of sensed the enormous possibilities that it had of making students, all students kind of recognize that statehood, nation statehood, in the way that we understand it today, nation statehood in South Asia is quite a recent phenomenon. It's, it's only hmm. about 70 years old. But one of a key factor about understanding that whole thing is about seeing how nation statehood in South Asia often clashes up against older traditions of understanding governance, understanding identity making, mm -hmm. and understanding you know how to situate yourself. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Somebody you know who's got mm -hmm. sovereignty or a nation statehood. This new yeah. thing clashes up against. So what the course helped to do was to really kind of bring that front and center in ways that would not necessarily have happened had we not been teaching this class together. Secondly, you know, we were talking about systems of knowledge production. And one of the things that does come to me when I teach in India is so much of our uh, discussions about what constitutes uh, civilizational traditions of knowledge, knowledge yeah. making in South are also very colonially informed. They come from a set of ideas that were developed in the 19th century by British scholar administrators who were inventing the idea of Indian civilization, you know, and even thinking about the past in South Asia are deeply interconnected with that pattern of thought as well. Uh, Same time, there's certainly like a crying need, you know, like there's no denial. I mean, it's self-evident that the time is certainly ripe for a set of uh, ventures to develop across South Asia. And one of the things that does strike me is how much of even the current crop of scholarship on decolonization 
is yes. not coming out of south asian universities you know i mean yes. it's not coming from south asian context and partly this is to do with researchers in better funded institutions yeah then let's have a quick critique from you i am not asking you to criticize but a quick critique of the universities because that was also my question to you we have to go beyond think tanks to universities as the generators of knowledge of the kind we need to move ahead yet question to you is where are the universities right now generally in terms of the quality but also in generating knowledge such as the ones we need for a future for south asia yeah you know and the other figure i was thinking of i mean if you look at a figure like tagore like yeah. one of the things that he sort of uh, gets is that look in this whole business of making pan asianism and thinking in a slightly different way about what asia is what asian traditions of governance are supposed to be mm-hmm. closely interconnected with that whole process is the business of setting up a university there's a urge yeah. to shubharati <laughs> you know create knowledge for those purposes the short answer is that there's a urgent need for more funding you know in, yes. in universities right across south asia because part of what that would you know achieve is being able to generate a greater body of knowledge about the very pressing questions that address all of south asia in ways that are more immediate or relevant than perhaps what can be generated outside professor chaturvedi one of the reasons the university was started was to make up for the lack of an overarching regional vision in our individual universities and that is why we were all excited when it was started we were less excited when it got concentrated because we also had been consulted in various parts because there were what was known as town hall meetings conducted in various cities of south asia when it was conceived and the idea was there would be a disaggregated university with departments else in various parts but perhaps that was impossible to do logistically so it became a university based in new delhi i'm wondering to begin with like the organization sark it has not been able to do much but its very existence points to a future for all of us i believe that south asia university might have done much more but perhaps we don't appreciate enough what it has already achieved so may i turn to you then now and ask you where has the south asia university been in terms of uh, generating information and knowledge for the sake of our shared future i think this is the question or set of questions which um, all of us at the south asian university wake up with every morning and perhaps <laughs> go go to bed thinking about it what yeah. is a university when i joined south asian university i looked at it as the nalanda of the 21st century an investment into the future and because it is the outcome of a interstate agreement the institutional landscape the hardware of south asian university is also obviously impacted by the larger geopolitical geoeconomic strategic developments on the subcontinent but it is a mission and a vision which keeps us going and we should continue with that because article 2 of the sau act 2008 and this was a result of interstate agreement and then 2010 onwards our classes numbers were small but the numbers have, have increased over the years it clearly says number 1 to create a world class institution of learning that will bring together the brightest and the most dedicated students from all countries of south asia irrespective of gender caste creed disability ethnicity and socio economic background to impart to them and i salute this vision liberal and humane education and to give them the analytical tools needed for the pursuit of a profession and inculcate in them the qualities of leadership mm-hmm. the second was to build the south asian community of learning where we will be able to develop his or her fullest intellectual potential create a south asian community 
to impart mm-hmm. education towards capacity building. And I think this is where mm-hmm. these knowledge production exercise at the South Asian University mm-hmm. has this very important task. Are we doing it through our curricula building? Mm-hmm. Are we doing it through our pedagogy? These are some very, very important questions. And then, of course, to contribute to the promotion of regional peace and security by bringing the future leaders of South Asia. Mm-hmm. I would say we have done rather good is in terms of the purpose is not conversion, but the purpose is conversation. Perfect. South Asian University is also serving as an intellectual platform of translation. And I'm very confident that when our students come, I hope we get more students from say, Pakistan. I hope we get many, many more from Maldives, which is not happening. There are different reasons for it. But I'm very confident that the day they move out of South Asian University, today, Akbar Bhavan and tomorrow, Medan Gadi, they are not the same as they were when they joined South Asian University. Yes. Sitting under the same roof, thinking of South Asia together, listening to lectures. And we are in our Department of International Relations, as Dr. Pallavi Raghavan has also alluded to. You know, the challenge of decolonization. And what we are saying is that, look, in South Asia, when you look at the region, our goal is new regionalism for South Asia in the 21st century. That yeah. is what our vision is. When we are talking about non-Western IR, global IR, when we are provoking our students to think critically about the historiography of the discipline of international relations. We are telling them that we are not creating another conclave, inward looking. We are not creating a narrowly framed South Asian socio-spatial consciousness. But we are reminding you that our consciousness needs to be taken out of territorial traps of all kinds. How do we get there? You've been in this field. You've been dealing with your students who come from all over. You've been dealing with all the nuances that come when there's a student from Afghanistan, another from Bangladesh, one from Nepal or Sri Lanka. Sadly, you don't get enough students from Pakistan, I know. And I do hope in future that will change. But how do we get to that point to break out of the colonial shackles in this day since you are engaged with the one university that is essentially mandated to do so? Thank you so much, Dikshitji. I teach uh, a number of papers, including the theories of international relations and geopolitics and uh, maritime South Asia. The first question that I ask my students when I open up is that, uh, how many continents are there in the world, on the globe? And they would say eight continents, okay, seven, eight, whatever. So I said, list them, because what I want to see whether how they look at Europe and Asia, and they would say, this is Europe, this is Asia, two continents. And then I say, I tell them that this is one of the greatest geopolitical conceits of all times. And I refer them to a book called uh, Myth of the Continents. And I introduce them to the concept of critical matter, meta geographies of IR. And I show them, making a reference to another critical geographer, John Agnew's work, that it was during the civilizational geopolitics that the cultural boundary was being drawn between Europe and Asia. It's not a physical boundary, it's a cultural boundary. Mm-hmm. And then I introduce them to the, another concept called the territorial trap, again by John Agnew. And I make them think, I provoke them to think that, look, all regions are constructions, right? And we are on a mission. We are on a vision. The idea is to imagine, reimagine, learn, unlearn, relearn, and talk about new regionalism. So I agree that all regions are constructions, but subcontinent is a eco-geographical region. Look. It is a ecological, geographical region means that ecologically speaking, we have always been integrated. Mm-hmm. The point is, how do we understand geopolitical disconnects? There is a huge mismatch between our ecological zones, our understanding mm-hmm. of space, place, 
and the kind of geopolitical boundaries that we see. And as Dr. Raghun has beautifully talked about it in a book that we are post-colonial, yes, but are we really post in the sense that have we really left? Have we become mm-hmm. colonized enough? Perhaps not. Maybe that is why we still have some cartographic anxieties there and there. But it also makes a difference that we are post-partition. Another challenge. Mm-hmm. The problem with the anxiety is, and the emotions, that's another subject we study, emotions in IR. I tell them that, look, the challenge is that your new regionalism should not be driven by fear, but by hope. So the Mansarovar podcast, the very mentioned Mansarovar, I think is a very important metaphor, example, vision, imagination, to, I think, tell ourselves that Indian subcontinent is an eco-geographical region where we study partition not only to understand, which is important, what went wrong and what could have been avoided but was not avoided, but to ensure that we don't have further future partitions. Mm-hmm. And remember, ecologically, we are joined by the hip. So we have to, and that is, that is what, you know, one of the most inspiring motives of SAO is knowledge without borders. Mm-hmm. And I tell them that, look, physical borders are easier to dismantle as compared to the mental borders. And therefore, at South Asian University, let us understand where our mental borders come from. And let us make sure how do we make them more porous through conversations, future-centric conversations, remembering that there are certain kinds of futures we would certainly not want to see for ourselves, for our children, mm-hmm. for our grandchildren. I would just ask one last question, because as I was meaning to, uh, let's put this to Dr. Raghavan quickly. We all thought when, I thought, when online arrived. So we thought online was a great way, just the way we are talking right now. Online would lead to a brave new world of South Asian collaboration, academic collaboration, media collaboration, but it's not happening. The nation state is so strong that it's, if anything, I think uh, online has strengthened nation statism thus far. But again, I feel that's because we haven't provided an alternative vision. Your view quickly, uh, Dr. Agavan, and then Professor Chaturvedi, could not online have been more than it is? We've already had it now for more than a decade, but it's not leading to more academic collaboration as I see it. Yeah, I sort of a half and half kind of answer there in that, I mean, you're absolutely right. Having access to the internet really facilitates communications. And if nothing else, at least it speeds up the process of collaborations much faster. For example, in the course that I did, we spent a good chunk of our time on Zoom and connecting the classrooms that way. So for us, it really is the beginnings of a revolutionizing education, you know, if Mm -hmm. nothing else. It's got its limits. I mean, we just need to look at the troll armies, you know, anybody with a smartphone is basically able to pitch in with their informed opinion about, you know. So it does have its limits. And, you know, at the end of the day, basically, you can't transcend geography, you know, so you can set up all the things that you want, but you can't change where you live in the situations of where you live. But it is an exciting medium. And I think it opens up the way you teach, and the you know, the kinds of things that you end up, the ways in which you think and the ways in which you teach, like those things can change because of the technology that you're using. So your idea is we don't give up on it. Professor Chaturbedi. Yeah, thank you. I think it's a billion dollar question. Concerns billions of us all over the world. Because I think when you said the, the social during the pandemic, as we speak and as we conclude our conversation, we should also be asking ourselves, what the lessons have we learned from the pandemic? Which mm-hmm. is hope is the last, but may not be the case. There might be more such pandemics. And uh, one thing that worried me the most, besides, of course, the health, and I realized that the boundary between the personal health and the, and the public health is very problematic, was that mm-hmm. uh, 
फिजिकल डिस्टेंसिंग इज फाइन बट सोशल डिस्टेंसिंग डिजास्टर यस इंटरनेट कैन क्रिएट अ कम्युनिटी एंड इंटरनेट शुड बी यूज टू क्रिएट ट्रांसनेशनल रॉबिस्ट and i think culturally vibrant deeply spiritual mm. peaceful accommodative and uh, if that is the challenge then i think let us use the internet space also with very carefully and with some caution and not mm. as a substitute for our social conversations or cultural because then i think that has been the south experience as well let me just say that a hoping that the south asia university campus will indeed promote more face to face interactions even while we take full advantage of the internet like we're doing right now we're not reinventing the wheel when we talk about the need to study history and you Uh, there have been those before us who have felt the need for it i won't take all the names right now but great scholars from delhi and karachi and lahore got together about 30 years ago to try to create a south asian history one that could be taught proudly because of the rigor with which it was created and that project went nowhere and since then i think perhaps if anybody were to think about a holistic recreation of south asian history it wouldn't happen but what one must do is bits and pieces put together will become the new south asian history and one way to solve the problem is a south asianism to think with a south asian sensibility and i believe all three of us here carry the south asian sensibility we may come from different countries different societies different parts of different countries and uh, kishia here too is a south asian i can see that and whoever has thought of this program are south asians even while they may be an indian or a pakistani or a nepali i thank you all thank you for tuning in rate this conversation on spotify apple and google podcasts to stay updated visit our website csdronline.org and follow us on twitter at csdr_india the opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by csdr or friedrich ebert stiftung